Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we've been visiting the White House, talking to some of the people employed there about the particulars of their jobs. This week, we took a step back from the administration itself to chat with the Washington Post's White House bureau chief, Juliet Eilprin. A former environmental reporter for the Post, Eilprin made the jump to her current beat back in 2013, and she's been covering the Obama administration ever since. She talked to us about everything from the challenges of covering a story in an environment where security is the rule to the strangeness of having the president mispronounce your name when he calls on you during a press conference. We also chatted with her about what she tries to capture in her articles and about some of the stories she's proudest of. And in a Slate Plus Extra, Eilprin, who wrote an entire book about sharks, tells us some of her favorite details about those ancient predators of the deep. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from Working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Juliette Eilprin, and I'm the White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. So what are your responsibilities as a White House Bureau Chief? First and foremost, it's to cover the president and to capture for the Post readers Everything from the policy that he and his aides are making to how he's experiencing major world events, his personal life, how the institution of the White House itself has changed. And then separately, part of my job is to coordinate coverage among our team. I am our main liaison to the White House, which means that, frankly, whenever they're generally upset about anything that a Washington Post journalist has done. I'm the first person they contact. Um, and also, if often when my colleagues need something from the White House, I kind of am that in-between person. In addition to that, things that no one on the outside sees, including helping to do our pool rotations along with another colleague from the New York Times, where we make sure that whenever the president travels, there are journalists going with him from the print media who are covering him, just, you know, assorted odds and ends. What led you to writing and reporting in the first place? How did you end up at The Post? Well, if you want the real origin story, it goes back to high-quality ice cream that was being given out for free on my college campus when I started. Um, it was it was the open house at the Daily Princetonian at Princeton University, and I I care a lot about high-quality ice cream. I wouldn't have come, frankly, it, it if it had like, been frozen yogurt or you know some inferior ice cream. It was Thomas Sweets, to be more specific. So it was is, it was really high-quality. It was high-quality. Yeah. So that was what lured me originally, but obviously the more serious interpretation of what happened was that I really enjoyed 
covering decisions made by people in power and saw how they affected people's lives. And that in the microcosm of my college was the college administration. I actually covered the president and the vice president and decisions that they made and saw what impact it had on students. And so that's really what got me interested in pursuing it as a career. And So, so you started with presidential administrations, administrations of a sort, and you're back to one now. But before that, you were an environmental reporter. Yes, and I covered Congress. Really launched my political reporting career as I joined Roll Call newspaper in December of 1994, right after Republicans had won control of both chambers. And it was a fascinating time to cover politics in Washington. And I focused on Congress first for Roll Call, then for the Washington Post, which I joined in the spring of 1988 and did that for several years, got really burnt out covering political dysfunction, begged for a job change, ended up covering the environment, which was very satisfying, and I did that for nine years. You wrote a whole book about sharks, right? I wrote a book about sharks. My first book was about Congress and why it was messed up, and my second book was the much more inspiring tale of sharks and their journeys around the world. So how did you end up on the White House beat? The managing editor asked me to switch to cover the White House, and I, with some trepidation, agreed to do that. Why trepidation? Partially because I really had enjoyed covering a substantive beat like the environment, and I thought it was important and interesting, and I still had more to explore and write on that beat. Also, because, of course, there are plenty of stereotypes about White House coverage and the idea that you're sitting around, it's difficult to break news, uh, you know, all the things that people say. And so for that reason, it was it was tough to give up something that I felt was very satisfying and, and switch to the unknown. But I've actually really enjoyed it more than I would have thought. Can you say more about those stereotypes? Is that proved right. true? I think there are certain parts of it that do prove true, which is certainly by definition there are many things that take up a huge amount of time when you're covering the White House that means that you're not spending time doing as much independent reporting and digging. And so, for example, when you have to attend the daily briefing or monitor it, when you're traveling and there's so many logistics involved in that, all of those things, uh, you're around other reporters a lot of the time. And those things put constraints on your ability to do investigations. At the same time, I think that by doing as much reporting outside the White House and developing as many outside sources as you can to tell you what's happening on the inside, that's really the way that you're able to figure out what's going on. Were you already credentialed with the White House? You're wearing no. you're wearing your badge, a press badge I, right I am, now. I am wearing my badge because I came straight from the White House. But you have to go through a Secret Service check, which takes several months. During that time, you have to go through a fairly laborious process of submitting your name every night so that you can get in the next day for when you need to go. And they actually theoretically monitor how often you're showing up to see if you deserve a White House press pass. And then once you get it, you have it for a couple of years. Do you dress differently on a day when you're going to go to the White House than you would otherwise? Does, does even going through security affect like whether or not you choose to wear a necklace like the one you're wearing today? <laughs> I generally wear jewelry, so often I will set things off. We don't go through – I should clarify, it's not exactly the same thing that you go through in an airport. But it's the, a metal I, detector. It's yeah. a metal detector, and I set it off regularly, although oddly sometimes I don't. Uh, <laughs> but generally, I, I try to dress up for yeah. the White House. So I prioritize dressing up over whether or not I'm going to have to be waved once more to check to make sure that there's nothing that I shouldn't be bringing in there. Does everyone dress up when they go to the White House, do you think? Pretty much. I think that's more – the standard than the exception. I think yeah. it's rare, for example, 
there might be an exception with the folks who operate TV cameras and things like that. I think there's very little expectation that they have to dress more formally on a daily basis, and they are there day in, day out. And there's probably a different standard for folks who are appearing on TV and Mm. folks who are not. How much time do you actually spend at the White House itself? Less time than you would think. So it really depends on what's called your duty week. We have a rotation where at a week at, at a time, one correspondent is responsible for really anything that comes out of the White House. So during that week, you do need to be there at least during, theoretically, the daily briefing, which happens once a day in the middle of the day. For that, you know, I'll be showing up regularly. And then occasionally, again, I might have interviews with folks in the White House itself. We have a very small cubby like desk at the White House. I mean, there's constraint space for everyone, including the media. And so it's really not an ideal workplace. We don't have a hard line there. And I just really try to only be there if there's some actual event at that moment that do you have, requires it. Do you have internet there? I mean, is it? can you work at all when you're operating there, out of that we space? We often have to use a hotspot to work during the mm-hmm. briefing itself. There's no Wi-Fi. So you use your hotspot if the you're actually sitting there and someone's at the podium. What are your hours like? Do you have a set schedule? Uh, I have a fairly set schedule. When I'm on duty, it can really change. But I tend to get into my office a little around nine, you know, around nine, a bit after that. Um, I'm working on stories. I might have already had put something up online. I certainly cert- I start responding to emails that matter very early in the morning as soon as I'm up. And uh, then I'm kind of working throughout the day. On a usual day, I actually leave at 5.30. I have small children. And so I file in time to make that personal deadline, which matters a lot to me. And then I'm essentially offline for a couple hours. And then I'm back online and usually doing a great deal of work uh, once my kids are asleep. Those weeks when you have the pool responsibilities, what is the sort of daily briefing like? What's the kind of scheduling? What's that experience like? That is one of the great challenges of covering the White House, uh, which is that the daily briefing, first of all, is always late. It is. Sometimes it's 15 minutes late. Sometimes it's half an hour late. Sometimes it's close to an hour late. Do you know why it's Uh, so erratic? It really has to do with internal White House processes. The press secretary is being briefed on various things that might come up at the briefing. There are certainly many meetings that are happening that we don't know about. But for whatever reason, this is not something that happens on time. Despite the fact that it does not happen on time, you need to be there at the appointed time, which they tell you late the evening before. So you always have a sense the night before what time theoretically the briefing is going to start. And again, it usually is any time between 12 or 1230 and 1.30 is when it starts. Uh, the Kansas City Royals came to the White House recently. Josh Ernest, the White House press secretary, is an unbelievable Royals fan. And he scheduled the briefing for 10, 15 a.m. just so he would have exactly, you know, enough time to get to the official welcoming ceremony for his home team. So the, we again, we don't control that briefing schedule, and they certainly make it work for them. But that briefing often takes an hour and a half. And during that time, you are in your seat while the press secretary is answering questions from the press. And for the most part, the briefing is something that the network's need very much and the wires need. And there are always inevitably questions that they need to ask. It is less important for other media outlets. And in fact, they're often 
journalists who go there regularly and don't ask questions, but you still need to see what they're talking about for the issue of the day. And there is periodically an effort to see if we could take you know, a briefing one day a week, two days a week off camera because it would be shorter. Mm. And it because would, there'd be fewer questions from the There'd be fewer. The they're just people would, would not have to ask the same question over and over again so they get the press secretary answering their specific question or what oh, have you. Okay. And it would, it, it's, it basically, there would be a push to go back to the way it used to be done. It's probably impossible and will never happen, but it essentially takes up a tremendous amount of time and just generally does not deliver huge news value. But it does also speak to the fact that people need to, you know, you never know what's going to happen on a given day and you certainly want the White House to be available for you. Yeah. I was right. in the briefing room once. I was surprised by how much it looked like the briefing room looks on television. Exactly. They have those replicas. Really, they do a they great really spot-on job. What's the atmosphere like when you're waiting for it to start? Right. Is, are, are people talking to each other? Does everyone have their heads down? People are, are generally chit-chatting a little with each other. We have assigned seats in the press briefing, which I think is kind of interesting. I sit in between uh, the New York Times and NPR and like all those people on both sides of me, in addition to the folks in front and behind. <laughs> and so often you tend to be talking most often to the people who are near you, but there can be back and forth with people who are sitting in different areas. Um, sometimes we're emailing with each other or, again, trying to get other work done while we're waiting for it to start. We also we get something that's called a two-minute warning. So you, while you will be sitting around waiting for the briefing to start, generally you're doing that at your desk, and then you get a two-minute warning. And so then there's this this very small time that you're sitting okay. there before the press secretary walks in. Um, has anything ever surprised you in those briefings? That's a good question. I think that there have certainly been times where there's been a back and forth between the respective press secretary and a journalist that can be kind of, you know, entertaining generally. There are times when they make announcements that matter. It's rare that the press secretary would say something that would shock you. And the president almost never stops by the press briefing unannounced, but it does happen on occasion. So certainly that can be surprising. What are you listening for, if if not for all of these boring questions that the, the TV people ask? <laughs> I'm always looking for statements that shed light on how the president is thinking about an issue. There's what what is really interesting about, I would say, you know, the role of, for example, the press secretary is that person does spend a tremendous amount of time in the president's presence. And so as a result, they tend to be pretty good at channeling what what in this case President Obama is thinking. And so sometimes you just look for on kind of a sleeper issue, how do how do they talk about something? And and then there, you know, there are times where if you go in for, uh, you know, with an agenda, you want to ask something about either the news or the day or something else that you particularly want to are working on. But that's always a tricky issue because if you ask a question about the story you're working on, you better be turning it around pretty quickly because everyone else hears the question that you're asking. Yeah. Once the press conference is done, what's yeah. your process? Do you rush back to the Washington Post to start writing or or do you go it, seek out other sources? It kind of, it, well, it really kind of depends on, on the day. You almost always have someone who's backing you up in the office itself. And so, again, and often, so when there's a press conference, it can be one of a few different areas. It could be in the briefing room itself. It could be in the Rose Garden if the weather's nice. It could be in the East Room of the residence. So basically, there's usually some time where it takes you to get back to your desk. And then you might go, usually you need to do 
even though someone's backed you up, you might want to do some initial writing to kind of reflect what happened. And then generally, I would head back to my office and get a sense of outside perspectives, figure out whether we're doing an analytical take of what's happening, things like that. Do you ever interact directly with the president himself? It is very rare to have direct interaction with the president. And my understanding is that's also become maybe in some ways less common later in the administration. Maybe he did it a little more in the very beginning. But that is definitely one of the challenges. There are occasional times, for example, where on Air Force One, when you're traveling on a trip, particularly if it's an overseas trip, on the return flight, there are times when he'll come to the back of the cabin and he'll speak off the record to the group of journalists who happen to be on that leg of the flight. And because we rotate who's on Air Force One, there's no guarantee, even if you've traveled all the way to Asia or Latin America or wherever it is, that you don't get to get to talk to him. But there are times when that's happened. So in terms of the most frequent interaction I've had personally with the president, it's in the context of him coming to the back of the plane. Does he know the names of people in the press corps? That is an excellent question. He knows the names of the reporters who covered him during his first presidential campaign and are still around or have covered the administration from the very beginning. I would say, for example, he does not know my name. He might at this point. It would be interesting for, and he's for, I've asked, for example, he calls on reporters at press conferences and he has your name and he has a pronouncer for your name. I have a difficult last name. And there is one time that he has gotten my name right, which made my father particularly happy. There are other times when he's mispronounced it and it's been painful. <laughs> We're going to find that footage and edit it in. All right. Uh, I think this is going to be our last question. Juliet uh, Alsper. There you go. Thanks so much. So one of the Can you say your name first again? Isle <laughs> Prin. Isle It's spelled differently, and that is the true challenge. You've been listening to Juliet Eilprin, the Washington Post's White House bureau chief. In a minute, Juliet tells us about the challenges of pursuing stories in a security-conscious environment. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is there a community of other reporters on this beat? Do you interact with people from other publications and, and such? Yeah, you definitely spend a lot of time with your counterparts from other institutions. Where it happens the most is usually on the road, that essentially you're doing trips with the president and there's a group of you that's traveling and certainly there there's that. And that is, is nice. I mean, again, there are kind of benefits and downsides to that because you don't often get scoops when you're surrounded by your peers from other publications. But the flip side is I have a great deal of affection for a number of the other White House reporters, and they're a good crew to spend time with. When there's a breaking news event uh, and the president is going to weigh in, say, the Pulse shooting in Orlando, uh, how do you figure out what the White House is going to say, when they're going to say it, what way you need to cover it? That it, of course, it totally depends on the situation itself. But one thing that we're highly dependent on is what I mentioned was the pool, which is essentially a system which is really maintained by journalists so that someone every day is physically near the president when something's going to happen on duty, whether he's in town or whether he's out of town. And for example, that person is a point person who then can communicate things like that, who can send out an email saying the president's been briefed on this. We just, you know, this is what we've just learned from the White House or heads up off the record. It looks like there'll be some statement at some point, things like that. I mean, sometimes those communications come directly from the the press office and they might they may give us some warning about something like that. But that is one way that we can have a fairly quick communication system of what's going to happen. And so then you at least have a sense of how he's responding to it. How often do you have more direct interactions with someone in their office? You know, it really depends. For example, I'm working on a couple of long-term stories now where I've had a number of face-to-face interviews with senior staffers just in the last week. I've had at least four. But that, I would say, is sort of unusual, particularly to have them in their office. I mean, also, things are pretty hectic, you know, in our day-to-day operations. And there's a lot of times when you would just do that on the phone. It just depends on what you're working on. How do you set conversations up? Do you reach out to the people directly or does everything pass through the press office? For the most part, things pass through the press office. There are occasional times then you certainly can reach out to someone via email and you might talk to them on the phone or have an email exchange. But if you're going to see someone in person, that is almost inevitably done through the press office. Does that obligation to pass through the press office change the kind of relationship that you can develop with a source? Certainly. I mean, there is a there is a level of control that's exerted by the press office in the White House that's different from most institutions. Certainly, one of the best comparisons would be Congress, mm-hmm. which I covered for ages. And there, it's not that you wouldn't often go through the press office, but You could also have a direct relationship with members, some of them, and again, it's kind of changed over time with technology, but there are members who are fine with you texting them or, you know, emailing them directly and not going through their 
press person. And certainly there are other people who work in their office where you would never think you could just email the chief of staff. You wouldn't go to the press secretary and say, by the way, can I email your chief of staff to ask a question? Whereas Mm -hmm. it would be highly unusual to email Obama's chief of staff and ask a direct question. You know, one of the great things I always thought about Congress is it's just so much more fluid and you can bump into people. You're you're not going to happen to bump into the president as he's walking down the colonnade. That's just not a scenario that would unfold. How do you negotiate the kind of off the record, on the record background stuff? Is that ever an issue? It's a constant challenge to negotiate (laughs) the terms of our discussions. And, uh, you know, it really kind of depends. Of course, the default of the White House is they often really don't want officials quoted if it's not the president. And they will talk about, you know, we'll do this interview and it's on background, meaning you can refer to it as a senior administration official, but you have to come back to us with quotes that you want approved. Certainly, that's not a great position to be in. There are times when one decides that it's worth doing that in order to have someone speak frankly. The Post has a policy, for example, we always have to explain why someone wants to be anonymous. Mm -hmm. There are times when, as a group, we try to push back where they might do a briefing and say that it's going to be on background. I think this happened recently with the briefing that I think involved a policy measure having to do with cancer. And essentially, it was going to be on background. And a group of us started emailing about why wouldn't this be on the record? They're just explaining a policy that they're pursuing. They're going to get on the phone with a lot of reporters. And when, so we pushed. When you say a group, you mean yeah. uh, you and other reporters from other publications? Other reporters from other publications. And so, again, that's that's why there are – it's interesting when it comes to transparency, There's there is this collaboration that goes on between outlets. And so, essentially, a few of us emailed, communicated with the White House, and by the time that briefing actually took place, it was on the record. Hmm. So how do you get away from all of that then? You talked about developing sources yep. outside of the White House. Right. What is that? Not You don't have to give up your yes. secrets, but what does exactly. that involve? Without divulging my top <laughs> secret sources. Uh, well, I would say that first of all, so part of that entails, again, working directly in my office or outside the White House where you have time to meet with people in person. You're talking to them. You're emailing with them. One thing that is challenging, I would say, about covering the White House is on a certain level, you're a generalist. On any given day, you could be covering domestic policy issues, foreign policy, a military question. I mean, there's just a huge range of issues that you have to cover because the president's portfolio is so vast and the White House is dealing with so many issues depending on the day. At the same time, you clearly develop expertise. I covered the environment for years. I'm extremely well plugged in to whether it's the environmental community, the folks who are regulated by, you know, agencies, whether they're, you know, oil producers or coal folks or what have you. And so those are certainly resources that I tap into when I want to figure out what's going on. One really interesting example I would say that happened recently is that the president held this highly unusual four-hour listening session with a group of folks to talk about policing reform in the wake of obviously the deadly shootings that we've had, both of motorists and civilians and police officers. So that was this four-hour closed-door conversation that he had in a room with a huge slew of people. It was something, I believe it was something like 33 people from around the country who came in for that session. And it, it ended late enough that it was very difficult to do a meaningful story that would make the paper. But a colleague of mine, Wes Lowry and I, divvied up 
the list of people and reached out to a number of them. And we managed to connect with a third of the folks who had been in the room. And we had fascinating discussions with them about what it was like to be in this room, which was highly emotional, highly charged, but also an incredibly frank discussion of the problems of race and policing in this country. And what was interesting is we wrote a story of what it was like to be in that room. And that's the kind of journalism that I like to produce that I feel like is not something that somebody else has done that really sheds light on the president in this moment on a social issue that we're grappling with. And one of the things I thought about after it was over is that so much of the time when you're talking to folks, almost everyone in the room directly works for the president of the United States. And it's much more liberating to report when there are people who don't actually work for the president. And so that's kind of part of what I think one always has to work to do. How else do you reach out to people who don't work directly with the president? Do you talk to former administration people, uh, policy experts? Absolutely. It's a whole range, certainly. And that's one thing I've only covered this administration in its second term. But I think there's certainly something that's easier about covering a second term because you have people who've been on the inside who are now outside but are still in touch with their colleagues. And that can always be a resource. You certainly have policy folks uh, who are working on some of these issues and they are often interacting. it. So you're always just kind of trying to do a map of who are the people who are talking directly to folks making decisions? What are the documents that are being exchanged? Are there ways to get a hold of those? You know, what are other ways you can kind of capture what's happening without directly going to the White House and asking for them? How much freedom do you have to push back against their narrative? I think it really depends on the issue, and that's why you always need independent sources of information. One of the, the example I would give of the time that I felt that I had the best negotiating position with the White House was with the failed rollout of healthcare.gov. And that was a time where, you know, things were a total mess. This was a huge priority for the White House. That was early in your time there too, right? Yeah, that was exactly. It was fall of 2013. And I teamed up with a fabulous colleague of mine, Amy Goldstein, and we broke a number of stories of what was wrong about the website and how it had been kind of improperly launched. And we had just a number of sources outside that gave us great information. At certain points, it was documents. Other times, it was, you know, things that we were briefed on. And while it was a very difficult time in my relation with the White House, they also had to recognize at at, at some point that if if our facts were right, they had to answer our concerns and, and address it. So it really depends. And, and, that's, and that is always your best option. Uh, you know, there's certainly... I, I should say there there are absolutely times when they do give you information that you need. And, and so it's not like that never happens. But certainly when you can say, I already have the information of what's going on. So it's your choice whether you cooperate. But I'm going to tell you that this is what we're proceeding to to write. That often is an area where you can kind of push back against whatever the official narrative is. Does that help you get a faster response when you have some <laughs> leverage? You know, I have to say, I they are really fairly responsive in terms of time. I mean, they're incredibly grueling hours that people put in there. And I'm sure that their rate of responsiveness when it's a major news outlet is quite fast compared to some of my colleagues who don't work for as big a media organization. But they don't just blow you off. That really 
almost never happens. And frankly, I'm just stunned that they have almost no downtime because they are constantly having to respond to a larger and larger media landscape at the same time when there are really serious constraints about how many people actually work in the press operation for the White House. You've been covering this beat since 2013. Has your sense of the administration of its tone, of its style, of what matters to it changed over that time? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that you just simply get to know a place better and the people who work there. And so ideally, you have a richer understanding of what motivates them and how they think about them. Also, while it's extremely frustrating that you don't get (laughs) quality FaceTime with the president and you're not really having frank conversations with him on a regular basis by any stretch, because he speaks publicly so often and because he expresses himself quite well, you just can pick up things about how he views the world and how he views the issues on his desk. And again, you also get to talk to the people who work for him. So I think that that has helped inform and maybe change my understanding of it. And I would also say that the administration has gone through different phases. When I started covering them, it was an incredible rough patch for them. Kind of everything was going wrong and people were quite demoralized. And so that was one phase of the administration. And I really felt like I got a handle on that. And then after the midterm elections, when he decided to really change his strategy and do more things unilaterally, it ended up in a different, you know, in a different mindset. And so that's also there are, there are rhythms and moods to administration and that changes over time. So do you think their tone is changing as they approach the kind of last six months or so of the presidency? I think a little bit. I mean, certainly you get more of a sense of a couple of different things that time is running out and there are really rushing to get stuff done that they want to. They obviously are more relevant than other presidents and administrations at this stage. But there is a lame duck feeling that certainly pops up from time to time, whether the briefing doesn't have that many reporters in it or not as many people are traveling, things like that. So there are all these ways in which uh, you feel like it's entered a different phase, I'd say. What was the hardest part of the last few years? There, I mean, I feel like there have been different points. I feel like there was certainly a period for example, when I was covering the botched rollout of the healthcare website, where it was fascinating from a reporting perspective, and I felt like I was doing really important and meaningful work, and I was getting yelled at, at a re- on a regular basis, and that's really tough. I think that there was also there the who was doing the yelling, <laughs> uh, the uh, the. White House officials, I mean, (laughs) you know, particularly in the press shop. So I would say that the the press operation has gone through different phases. And there was a period, particularly, again, towards the beginning of my time, even even before uh, we reached that stage of healthcare, where they were more combative. And there was no question that there were moments where you know, you would either get incredibly harsh emails or or people would communicate in a way that was just really difficult. At the same time, you know, I would say that there are times where, you know, it's it's just pretty exhausting. There are moments where, you know, either they're kind of tragic events you're covering, or including mass shootings, or, you know, there's just a barrage of news that you have to keep up with. And that that is obviously challenging in its own way. You said earlier that sometimes you will have to deal with a story upsetting them. What sure. Do you have a sense of what upsets the White House, <laughs> <laughs> of which kind of stories set them off? I think there are a range of things. And I think one of the interesting things that is always really 
difficult to know is when the president is angry about a story. It's very rare that you can pinpoint that. But I think there's certainly nothing that is more of a trigger than the president being dissatisfied with the story. I think that there are things that they tend to be – it kind of depends on, first of all, who's the person in the press office that you're dealing with. I mean, just broadly speaking, they don't like being accused of not being transparent. Mm. That is something that comes up that certainly there you can get real pushback when you do something that talks about transparency because they would argue that they've done a lot and most journalists would say this is not – the most transparent White House. What's it like to realize that the president himself is disappointed <laughs> with something that you wrote? I don't know of a good example of that from this administration when I was covering the environment. And I wrote about the extent to which the George W. Bush administration was not listing species on the endangered species list. I eventually ended up doing stories that showed that there was an interior administration official who was changing the scientific findings in some of these cases who ultimately had to step down. But earlier, I think before those stories came out, I had done a story comparing George W. Bush to not just Clinton, but his father. And this wasn't even a front page story, but it ran and someone from Interior called me up, a career official, but someone who was quite sympathetic to the current president, who said how I had gotten him in hot water. And we talked about it. And this was by the book. This was numbers. It's kind of you couldn't argue with it. And his response when I said, why are you so upset? And I had consulted with them and they had commented. And he said, the big guy at Pennsylvania, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is upset about it. And I'm getting yelled at. And that was a really interesting moment of feeling like, that's what happened. That is why you are freaking out right now. Because when the president is upset about a story, there are ramifications that certainly reverberate far beyond 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Do you have a sense now of, of how the White House itself functions within? Yeah, I think I have. I mean, it's hard to say because there are parts of it that you have a lens into and there's a part that don't. But, you, you know, you de definitely – get a sense over time of what's the management style of, for example, the current chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, the fact that it's certainly less chaotic and fractious at this point than it was in the first term. I think, you know, most people would say that that's the case. And, and that's interesting to kind of see how White Houses go through those stages as well. Do you think that's because they've found their own footing or is it uh, something about the changing political climate? I think it's a combination of that over time, of course, they are better at knowing what they want to do. I think the president has a better sense of what he needs and expects for the people who work for him. And I also think, interestingly, not only were we obviously in a crisis, an economic crisis when he took office, and so there were all sorts of imperatives that came with that, but frankly, they engaged with Congress more in the first term. And so there was this outside element to it, whereas because it's so difficult to get anything passed at this point. Almost every major policy initiative that the White House is focused on is something that they manage internally in the White House and in the agencies. And I think that that probably gives them a level of control that they didn't have over their day-to-day -day existence and over what they're doing that probably has eased some of the tension that happened in the first term. Do you expect to stay in this role as you move ahead, as we look toward the next administration? As we look towards the next administration, whoever that I, might be, whoever that might be, I am planning to stick around for one or two years. And then I think I would switch. But I think it would be very interesting. Some of the best 
White House reporters are ones who have covered more than one administration. And I think it would be really interesting to see what an, another administration. What do you think is think's like. gained from those shifts from one administration to the next? I think that you get a better, you get some sort of benchmark that somehow you are able to understand how one person is operating because you can compare them. My best example, and I am biased because I'm a personal friend of Peter Baker from the New York Times who had been their chief White House correspondent and is just about to embark on going overseas. And he has covered multiple administrations. And I felt that it lent a depth to his coverage that he could, sometimes he was dealing with a similar issue, like, you know, fighting terror or dealing with Iraq. But also, even if he was dealing with a totally different crisis or policy issue, the fact that he could see in his mind's eye how Bill Clinton or how George W. Bush dealt with it, it allowed him to think about Barack Obama in a different way that I think is hard to do if you're not having that perspective. For now, at least, your career has in some ways come full circle. You started Mm -hmm. out covering uh, administration issues at Princeton, yeah. uh, and now you're covering them in the United States. Right. Um, how does it feel to have taken that loop of a journey? It's it's fun. I think that there's something, you know, they're obviously extremely different, but there is something satisfying. It goes back to what I said before, which is that, you know, for all the downsides and the headaches that come with covering the White House, you're covering someone who is making decisions that affect not just Americans' lives, but people across the world, and to be able to have a sense of that and how that works and try to get a sense of what that person is like is is pretty satisfying. And I, I always think back, I actually was very casually dressed at times when I interviewed the president and vice president in my college days. And I, I look back at that with some chagrin. So at least I've upped my game on that front. <laughs> You've got a few months left with this administration. Yeah whatever else is ahead. What do you want to learn? What do you want to do in the time that you have left with them? I want to look at a whole slew of things. I want to look at some of the unfinished business and what does that mean? I want to get a sense of how he's thinking about his post-presidency, try to capture, I try to capture from time to time the culture of the White House. And I'd like to still do that because I think those are really interesting stories, kind of in the way that your podcast, I think, captures the culture of the White House. Those are things that I, I like. And I think that uh, give people a way into understanding what is a really important place, but not in the most predictable way. If, uh, if our listeners were going to go read yeah. One of the stories that you've done in the last few years that, that you're especially proud of or you think was especially revealing uh, right. or meaningful or important to you in, in whatever way, what would you want them to read? I wrote a few stories, but I would say one of them was a story I wrote about being in the press pool on the day of Bo Biden's funeral and what that was like covering that incredibly personal moment, but in in, a, in the context of covering the White House. And it was, I don't usually write in first person, and that was much more personal than what I usually do. I wrote a story about a wonderful man named John Ficklin, who in the past year has stepped down from being a senior staffer on the National Security Council, who is part of a long line of Ficklins who have served in the White House, but he was the first person who was not a member of the resident staff, but was a policy person. And it really showed the arc of history. I think those are the stories that are the most meaningful to me when I can kind of capture the arc of American history through this White House. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. You're very welcome. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. We read those emails and we'd love to hear from you. You can listen to all seven seasons of working at slate.com slash working, including the other episodes of our time at the White House. Special thanks this week to David Plotz, who helped us set up this interview, and thanks to Afim Shapiro. This series was produced by me and Mickey Capper, who also edits the show. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. 